0: The Nebo Company presents Leading the Emergence with your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome. I'm delighted to have you here with me today. Um, This is Kate Ebner. And as you know, our guest today is Dr. Carsonia K. Whitehead. And she is um, someone whose wisdom, perspective, knowledge, is incredibly valuable to us. Recently, um, Kay was featured as a a leading speaker for a series that Nebo Company did with Loyola University called 21st Century Leadership, and we were um, amazed and grateful for the way that she kicked off the series and really got us thinking. I think you'll find today that our conversation will open your mind, um, open your eyes, and perhaps help you understand what's possible as we come to the end of the um, pandemic time and move into a a post-pandemic period in which we hope to create a world that is not the same as the one that we um, experienced previously. So I'm going to introduce her today and give you a little bit of background. Um, I'm very pleased to um, have you here, um, Dr. Whitehead. I have to tell you that your... um, work at Loyal University and beyond, the radio show that you host and the uh, numerous ways that you're contributing to the dialogue nationally and regionally and locally about diversity, equity, and inclusion are really inspiring um, to me personally. And when I think about the feedback that we had from the session with you, I'm also interested in um, picking back up some of the themes that we had in that conversation So I want to, um, I think what I'll do right now is actually invite you to say a bit about yourself, um, Kay, and give us your background and what what drew you to this work and um, maybe some highlights of the work for you. So I
1: am an associate professor of communication and African, African American studies at Loyola University, Maryland, and also the founding director of the Carson Institute for Race peace and social justice. So this is both a research area for me. Um, it's a topic of interest for me. It's a way that my lived experiences come together. I am a, a trained historian. And so that's what I studied in undergraduate and in graduate school. But I took a deep focus and a deep interest in looking at the history of race, class, and gender in this country. And what does intersectionality look like at this moment? Uh, it just so happens that the world uh, is catching up in terms of understanding how these issues play out in the greater society to the work that I'm doing. The work was already being done and the world's interest uh, and focus has caught up with my
0: work. Fantastic. That's a great way to put it actually. And and, um, you do have the feeling to me of someone who's um, in the right place at the right time, helping us um, in a very significant way. one of the things that you said um, in the program that we did with Loyola was that race is a social construct and its definition has changed over time. And you gave us some historical perspective. Can you say more what that means? Race is a social construct.
1: Um, but the notion that race is a social construct goes against the ways in which we talk about race. People assume that that race has to do with, with what you look like. Uh, race has to do with the color of your skin, Um, Race has to do with kind of a historical understanding of slavery and white supremacy, and race is not. It's a social construct. It's something that was determined in this society, and class and hierarchy and slavery, um, oppression, um, segregation, uh, the ways in which police brutality play out in our community, poverty, are all connected to this notion of race. And who is superior and who is inferior Connected to just the color of your skin. I mean, this is you know 1619 theory going back to who was it that determined that a certain group of people were going to be enslaved indefinitely and a certain group of people would forever be the plantation owners or be those that are free or those that set the laws and dictate where the land is going to go forward, how we're building up our political system. So that is that notion that we are connected to race. We have a racial cloud that hangs over our country, but it's deeply rooted in a social construct of what it means to be black, what it means to be white, what does it mean to be Asian American or Hispanic in this country. The latter two, of course, came much later than being black and white in America, which
0: begins with 1619. Thank you for explaining that. And you know, I think, one of, I think building on that, um, this idea of the social construct, um, it's been really interesting to think about um, one of the points that you made, which is that as we look at sort of the evolution of the nation over our history, um, we tend, uh, probably as white Americans, to really um, have understood history in a particular way without a lot of attention to um, whose history is really being taught and told and yet if we look more closely and begin to open our eyes to um the legacy of our country of our great country i might say uh, we also might notice that um this, the story is very different depending on the experience that you were born into um, that you had um in historic historically and also up until the present day um one of the uh, things you point to is that um We've in effect had sort of two societies, um, or more than one society, um, developing in, in parallel, and that the experience that um, that, that Black Americans, that um, Americans who have not been in the majority uh, a, a culture, have experienced is actually a different history, a different story. Um, so, in our ability to see and grasp that that our history is more complex, um, that it has uh, more voices, more perspectives, more lived experiences than perhaps um, some of the history books have featured and I want to go to this idea of um, two societies or two nations and the idea of the moment that we're in K uh, 2021 um, we've come out of a year 2020 in which um, uh, the nation has really come face to face with uh, the, the disparity of the inequity and the oppression. Um, that has shown up through the murder of George Floyd um, and others, sadly. And so it's been a time when we've seen um, the Black Lives Matter movement has developed a momentum and a uh, a, a size and a scale, and I think a a, a moment, uh, what is the word I'm looking for, a kind of energy that transcends uh, race and speaks to humanity. And with all of this happening, And the pandemic um, also um, perhaps um, highlighting and illuminating um, disparity in this country. It does seem like the conditions are such that we could now actually move forward with a different understanding, uh, with a collective agenda for a better future. And so I want to pause on that long torrent of thinking and just simply ask you, what do you think uh, is the potential of the moment that we're in?
1: That's a difficult question because I think that the people want to see this moment as a history changing moment and when that things are going to be different. America is going to move in a different direction like like with the, the ending of the Revolutionary War, like like the ending of the Civil War, like when we uh, when America ratified the Nineteenth Amendment and women could vote, uh, when the Fifteenth Amendment was passed and it was the protection of voting rights for black men. I I don't think we're in that kind of moment. I don't. I think last year the entire planet watched a white police officer hold his knee on the neck of a black man for nine minutes and 29 seconds. And then people started to believe what black people have been saying for years, that, that we don't feel safe in this country, that this country is rooted in white supremacy, that this country has a problem uh, with black skin and seeing it as a threat, that that the fears that, that black mothers have been saying um, for years were finally recognized. I don't know if it's a, a big old moment or if it's just finally... Due to a global pandemic, people were in the house. They couldn't look away and they couldn't pretend it wasn't, it wasn't happening. I mean, I, I argue that we've been at these moments before. America was at this moment with Black Lives Matter 1.0. I mean, we were out marching in the street for Trayvon Martin. We were marching in the street for Mike Brown. I mean, Ferguson was on fire around Mike Brown. We were marching in the street with Freddie Gray. We were all screaming out for justice after 12-year-old boy, Tamir Rice, was shot in Ohio, and people who are not of color looked away and countered our pushes around Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. as if we were saying only Black Lives Matter instead of Black Lives Matter too. I mean, I think that this year has caused America uh, to stop and, and really take stock. I would argue that the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, after the murder of George Floyd, because it happened during what I would call a history-altering moment, which was COVID nineteen. I mean, that was a moment that shifted the direction of this country, um, and that within that, we we all saw the the video of what happened. Um, with George Floyd, so I think we need to to begin to continue to capitalize on people's interests in exploring the history of, of race, uh, American policing, uh, white supremacy, and whiteness in this country. While we have America's attention, while people are paying attention, we want to capitalize on it, knowing that moments move very quickly in this country and that we're in the midst now of a pushback
0: to critical race theory that I think we have to take seriously. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the things that I think about in the work that I do is the nature of, of a transformational change and sort of what are the characteristics that are present when there's a, 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 either an opportunity, I suppose, for transformation or, um, conditions, whether you choose them or not, that that bring us the possibility of a transformation. And when I think about transformation, I think of it as a change from which there's no going back. Um, something happens, something develops or, or, or grows, and you just, you can't wind back the clock and go back to the way that you were. And I think the pandemic has had that impact and has brought with it many important conversations in America I'm curious, um, do you see this time as a transformational time or do you think it has the potential to see the kinds of changes that would really transform the nation?
1: That's a really interesting question. Um, and, And it gives me pause to think as a historian. When you start talking about transforming The world, transforming America—that that's huge, right? Like I mean, you're talking, you know, big, huge, monumental change, America even though it's small in comparison to a lot of countries, America is a very large country when it comes to political ideas, when it comes to our ideas around freedom, when it comes to struggling with race and struggling with gender, struggling with class. America is really large. In fact, we have all of these different viewpoints happening at the same time causing this type of tension. So will this work around diversity equity and inclusion transform America? Well, what is interesting is that if you look historically, slavery ended in 1865. And immediately after that, you saw the rise of white supremacy through organizations like the KKK, through members of the KKK that were also police officers. You saw the rise of the mass industrial prison complex, ways in which black folks were being terrorized, um, and being pushed into these small boxes around, you know, controlling what we could do and what we couldn't do, where we could walk and where we couldn't. You saw the the enactment of all of, you know, the, the, the Black code law set up around where we could go, how we can access spaces. All of that came up after slavery ended, right? So when you had 1954 with Brown v. Board that tore down This notion of segregation, legalized segregation, you still had to have, you know, the Montgomery Bus Boycott, the March on Washington, um, Little Rock Nine. You still had to have the work of Ruby Bridges. You still dealt with the assassination of black leaders happening throughout the country from Megar Evers to Malcolm X to Dr. King and to you know white people who were you know in solidarity with what was happening, trying to bring about that change, trying to transform the nation. It was met with incredible resistance. We had Barack Obama as president, then there was a white lash, and here comes Donald Trump with the same ideas and ideologies and the same fears being stoked that we saw in the 1950s and the 1920s. Um, And so we we have this kind of return to this notion of who has the right of access, who has the right to be at the table. And so with, with this moment that we're in, We're not trying to to change laws, right? Because the laws are very clear. We're not trying to change policies. The policies are clear, right? That those who came before us did that work. They tore down the laws of exclusion. They tore that down. What we're really talking about is we're talking about trying to transform the hearts and minds of people. Mm -hmm. That is a lot more difficult that is something you can't quantify. Like, I don't know if I've changed someone's heart and mind. I, I don't know. Um, you know what I'm saying? It's like being a teacher. You, you don't know. If you're not teaching math, which is like two plus two is four, and give it back to me. If you're not teaching reading, go and read this and you know, let me know you can read. If you're teaching history, if you're teaching these bigger, broader kind of abstract concepts, I don't know if you're getting it. And, and unless you come back to me three, four years later, I'll never know if the work that I poured into the student had an impact. That's the work we're doing. We're talking hearts and minds. And that is the most difficult terrain that we've had
0: to cross. Mm, absolutely. You know, and and that's interesting to me, again, sort of. You know, sticking <laughs> sticking with my question about transformation, one of the ways that we think about that in in uh, in our study of, of transformational change and leadership is is exactly that. It's like it's transforming the way you see, the way you speak, and what you're capable of of speaking about. Um, how you convene, how you converse, um, how you listen. Um, so, seeing and saying being. The way you are, the way your your presence is, what you're tuned into, your ability to connect empathetically with others, um, and then the, and then what you do. So we think about transformational leadership. We're really thinking about first and foremost, uh, looking through new lenses, being able to see differently. And usually, once you can see something differently, you can't unsee it right? And so that, I think, to your point about this hard work of um, hearts and minds has something to do with being able to see differently. Um, I'm curious, you know, as you as you think about this in, in, in a pre- previous conversation with our Loyola University um, series, you, you mentioned that we're doing the work of generations that, and I think this ref- is a good reference to the point you made a moment ago, that this work has been ongoing for decades and decades with surges forward and huge setbacks and returns and 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 yet you said that we need to be doing this work for the future generations and I think you even said it would take us at least three generations to see significant change. Can you just comment on that?
1: Um, I, I think that this work that, that we're struggling with um, because it's not easy, be, because it is calling upon us to confront our values, uh, to confront uh, the ways in which we see ourselves and others, it is long-term work. It didn't take us just a few years to get here. I mean, we can go back beyond George Floyd, back beyond Trayvon Martin, back beyond Emmett Till. We can take back... To the brutality of American slavery, and that was what four hundred and two years ago, or so. So you know, four hundred three, four hundred four years. I mean, it's, it's it's hard work, and it's going to take a long time. I mean, will it take a lifetime? I don't know. I don't know if it's going to take a lifetime. Um, and when I say lifetime, I'm not even talking about my lifetime. I want to be very clear. I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. I don't. I, I do not believe. Given the fact that the last Jim Crow generation is still alive, uh, given the fact that we had the latest, you know, failed insurrection on January sixth, given the fact that we're just coming out of the Trump presidency, I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. I do, and I would be surprised, and I would be so grateful if it does, but I don't think it will.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't think it's going to happen in the lifetime of my children. I have zillennials. They're 18 and 20. Well, well, they've grown up with this. They, they have, they've been a part of the struggle around race in this country. Um, and, and even though they are progressive in their thinking, I know they've had classmates who are not. You know, I, I remember when my son at six years old, when his classmates played a game called Let's Get the Black Boy. He was the only African-American boy in his grade. Now he put six then, those same boys that he was in at that point with that played that game because it was never completely addressed when they were in 10th grade, these were boys dressing up in blackface, making jokes about it. They had started at six. No one completely addressed it by 10th grade. It was still a joke, a running joke around what does it mean to have this experience as a black person in this country? And now they're in college, right? (laughs) So, you know, if if it's not addressed early and often, then it becomes a part of who you are. And that's what I mean about hearts and minds. So so it won't take place in my generation. It's not going to take place in my son's generation. I do believe that if we stay consistent, if we keep bringing it back to the lowest common denominator of the fact that we are all equal in this country, and equality has to be defined, and we can actually quantify what equality looks like across the board, then what I'm thinking about, what I am hoping for, that it will be the children of my children who will benefit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's that generation that we can try to reach, because the goal is the last Jim Crow generation will be gone. The goal is people like me, we will have moved to that next level, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That Set, it will be my sons who would be in their thirties and forties and their children will be doing things differently because of the work that we are doing, which only builds on the work that my parents did, which only builds on the work that my grandparents did. And, and we can keep taking it back from there. Yeah.
0: yeah. That's really, that's great. It's very helpful to hear you speak to that. And, and, you know, we, there's a phrase, right. I think we used it in the series we did with Loyola called dismantling racism. And, you know, Right now, many organizations, many companies and and nonprofits and so on are really looking at at their culture, really looking at how to dismantle um, racism and oppression in their own culture. Um, And I'm curious about that phrase, dismantling racism and the idea of taking it apart, taking something apart, and then presumably putting it back together differently. I'm hearing you say it's going to take time and I really appreciate that. Um the perspective, what do you think um dismantling racism means in terms of changing hearts and minds for individuals for for human beings? How do we do that for ourselves
1: well there there are a couple of ways that that we do it if we're talking about going through the steps and i and I take people through the steps all the time where you start with where you sit with the question of race. You begin to ask yourself fundamental questions. You figure out where you are in terms of your racial identity development. Um, you start confronting your value system. You begin to question where did you get information from. And then you, you get on the, the, the path. Toward being anti-racist and knowing that when you make that stand to be anti-racist, you've all you've struggled through your own issues. That that the question of race begins first with you, but but dismantling racism is much bigger because if if you believe and I do that racism has been codified into law and it's been built into the foundational structure of America, what you're really talking about is looking to transform the systems of power that regulate and, and, and dictate the direction of this country. So you know, when we talk about dismantling racism, well, it's within the education system, the K-12 education. It happens within our, our red line communities in terms of looking at poverty and the impact of poverty on, on black and brown economically challenged communities. It looks at you know home ownership and the amount of interest rate that people are being charged who are black and brown in this country. It looks at student loan debt and the fact that black and brown people carry more student loan debt than our white counterparts. Dismantling racism looks at the mass industrial prison complex and the fact that even though we're 13.1% of the population, you we're know, over 39 to 40% of those that are incarcerated. Uh, dismantling racism looks at what's happening in the healthcare field and exploring why it is that black women are four times as likely to die during childbirth as our, our white counterparts, and our Asian-American counterparts. Uh, we're talking about dismantling racism and, and we look at what's happening in politics and, and why is it that we only have two or three black senators right now? And no black women as senators. Um, We start thinking about the fact we've never had a black woman as governor in this country. We've only had a handful of black men as governor. I mean, we're talking about dismantling a racist system. It's talking about dismantling the systems within that racist system and that there's power that is being transformed and being exchanged between those who are holding on to it.
0: And... And um, I, I appreciate very much that you've you've drawn all of those connections for us to really be able to see the systems that need to be dismantled. And what does it mean dismantling? What, what does it look like when we're dismantling?
1: I think dismantling is different for everyone. I, I think that dismantling a system is, is such a huge catchphrase. Um, yeah, it is. Um, and it sounds like something that would take a short period of time. It doesn't. If you're talking about changing America and dismantling, uh, upending systems of power, it takes a long time. Like, How do you dismantle racism in, in the mass industrial prison complex when the mass industrial prison complex is maintained through black and brown bodies, right? It's a multi-billion dollar industry that needs black and brown people to be there to to keep this industry moving forward, how how do you dismantle racism when it comes to student loan debt? Unless you're willing to completely erase student loan debt, but what does that do for the next generation who will have to take out student loans to go to college, right? Mm-hmm. So if you talk about dismantling racism in the healthcare field, you know how do we change it? Given the fact that we only have five percent of the physicians in this country that are black, so it's 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 a lot of work, and it, it's work that does not take just one person. That, that's the amazing thing about the work is that there are people who specialize in all of these areas and they are defining what it means to dismantle area by area. I am not in you know, the, the work of, of medical research and medical apartheid, but I know people who are and they're working on you know transforming that area. I, you know, I'm thinking about people like Deidre Cooper Owens, for example. I am not in the field of unthinking policing. But but I know people who are. I mean, Ruby Wilson Gilmore, Miriam Kaba, Angela Davis. Like I know they're doing that work. I, I mm-hmm. my work tends to deal more with education and educational structures and systems. So so my work deals with working with K twelve schools mm-hmm. and to train teachers and how they can do things differently. Looking to do training on college campuses. So dismantling looks different depending upon the, the subject
0: area and the ways in which
1: the people are working. Uh
0: And I think that that's a really um, great point. And I guess for the listeners uh, of this podcast, I would say perhaps it's something you could do is actually think about where you sit in the system and which parts of the picture you are influencing and managing and leading and how you might begin to engage and think about this idea of dismantling racism within the sort of this um you know the view and the reach that you have um and i know we're getting close on time um dr whitehead i have a question about a phrase you used that we we really uh, appreciated in the loyola discussion and you talked a little bit about bending your privilege i think that was your phrase um it's about bending privilege you said and that that's where the work can can Begin. Could you say a little bit more about that?
1: So when I talked about bending your privilege, it's recognizing um, areas in your life where you have power. And how do you use your power to help those who are not? So I am um, a Black woman who is a tenured professor at a predominantly or persistently white institution, bending my privilege is leaning in uh, for students of color who may not feel that they have a voice or if they are uh, doing protest work, then then I lean in to, to be a cover, uh, to protect them so that they can do the work. I bend my privilege. If I was a white woman, uh, in uh, at a persistently white institution, then bending my privilege with me making space um, for, for black and brown people. I would probably focus on black and brown women. Where are they in the department? Where are they on the tenure line? Uh, how can I amplify their work so that they're not being overlooked, forgotten, or having their work stolen from them? How do I bend my privilege in that area? I mean, it's just the ways that you can do it. You first have to recognize what your privileges are. I mean, let's be clear, race is not the only point of privilege, right? Education is a privilege. Class um, class is a privilege. If you are you're middle or upper class, that's a privilege. Um, having a car in America, that's a privilege. You have a lot of privileges, and I think you have to start there. Where am I privileged? Using you know a lot of the material that I've developed around you know, privileged work, but figuring out what my privileges are. And then once I figure out what they are, then how can I use them uh, to help others who do not have that privilege? What does that look like for me while well, still practicing self-care, knowing that, that I can't do this every single day, all day long, but I need to be strategic about the ways that I been my privilege.
0: Thank you. That was um, very, very helpful, I think, for all of us to hear you really talk about not just what it is, but actually how to do it and for sharing that example of your own your own life and how you think about it. So um, I think that gives us all something to, to begin to really examine within ourselves. Um, I do want to ask my one last question um, and, and then give a chance to say a bit more about how we can follow and learn from you. My last question is, you know, our podcast is called Leading the Emergence, sort of thinking about the post-pandemic world. As you look at 2021, 2022, 2023, the next few years, what do you, what do you see emerging?
1: I think people are more concerned uh, and more focused on equity, diversity, and inclusion. But I, I do feel that it's going to be a fight um, that we're going to have to deal with because of what's happening in Oklahoma Um, because of the conversations that have been happening with legislators, that there is an attack on critical race theory because they see critical race theory as being uniquely tied to Black Lives Matter. And what that's uniquely tied to is Black folks getting power. And so that is where the fight is. And I think that for those of us who work in this area, for those of us who have committed to standing this ground, and saying, this is where we're going to be, this is where we're going to fight, that we have to recognize that we're going to have to be constantly focused on making substantial changes, taking the wins where they are, pushing toward the greater battle, knowing that one small victory, putting one police officer in jail does not end police brutality. So just Mm -hmm. working harder to make sure that we can push society forward. So I think it's going to be a fight. I think we're going to have some successes. And then when you look at the impact, I don't know, the voting rights attack that's happening now, the attack on critical race theory, that every time there's a stride, there's going to be a pushback and we have to remain vigilant um, and we have to remain encouraged.
0: Thank you. My guest today, um, Dr. Carsonia K. Whitehead, is an award-winning and nationally recognized scholar focusing on issues of race, class, and gender in American society. She's an associate professor, as she said, at the beginning of Communication in African African and African American Studies, and is the founder of the Carson Institute for Race, Peace, and Social Justice at Loyola University in Maryland. Um, How can we follow you and keep learning from you?
1: Thank you. Uh, I am on all forms of social media. I am on um, Twitter at Kay Whitehead. That's K-A-Y-E, Whitehead. Um, And I think I have as my moniker, that's Dr. Not Mrs. Black Mommy Activist. (laughs) Uh, I am on Instagram at Black Mommy Activist. And they can follow me on Today with Dr. K on Facebook, which is where my radio
0: show uh, is live streamed every day from 3 to 5 p.m. Fantastic! Um, thank you again for being our guest and for really um, helping us see and think about um, where we are in all of this and what's what what to anticipate and how to how to roll up our sleeves and and do this important work in this time.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Leading the emergence is sponsored by the Nebo Company. If you would like to talk to NEBO about how to support the leaders in your organization, please contact us at www.nebocompany.com. Thank you.